Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Responsive leadership in, from, from my point of view um, really is about what drives us as leaders is the humanity of the people, the organization, the changes, the opportunities that we're trying to impact. And um, there are all kinds of kind of, you know, we hear about um all kinds of ways people describe leadership. You know, there's the visionary leader or the innovative leader um, or, you know, something that I believe in very much, the servant leader, which is a way that I uh, often um, describe myself. Uh, But the responsive leader for me, what drives our uh, work and our decision is the people and the humanity. Um, of the organization that we're serving and we're leading. How you dare, how you dare. That was the voice of Jackie Jenkins Scott. And as you heard, we're going to be discussing responsive leadership. We're also going to touch on diversity and inclusion, why some of it doesn't work, and the types of values that we need to instill in ourselves if we want to be in a leadership position that is set up for trying and difficult, turbulent times. Many people say they want to be leaders. Many people have leadership thrust upon them. But what many people aren't taught to do is how to stick it through during those challenging times, how to turn an organization around, how to turn a difficult situation into a good one. What types of innate habits can you develop in order to have this type of leadership ingrained in you? How can you be responsive in order to be able to know what's going on before it catches you by surprise? These are some of the things we touch upon, but it's touched upon more in-depthly in the book. So I hope you get it and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is amazing. Her name is Jackie Jenkins Scott, and she's a nationally recognized leader with more than three decades of experience in executive leadership positions in public health, higher education, corporate and nonprofit governance. She's widely acknowledged as a transformational leader, helping individuals and institutions achieve high performance and strategic results. She served for 21 years as the president of the Dimmock Community Health Center and 12 years as the president of Wheelock College, where I believe she was the first African-American president. Now, in 2016, she founded JJS Advising, focusing on leadership development and organizational strategy. We're gonna be talking about her book, The Seven Secrets of Responsive Leadership, We're also going to be talking about her background and different ways for you to essentially be committed to your values. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm I'm delighted to be here this morning. 
Well, the, the pleasure is mine. And we were talking pre-show a little bit about uh, our shared interest and passion in di- uh, diversity and inclusion. And something else I like about you and your career while doing research on you is the fact that, you know, the fact that New York City plays in the background there. <laughs> um, it's the fact that you have a a strong commitment for values. You know, it's something that you promote in everything you do, whether it's the work you do in public health, higher education, or, you know, uh, nonprofit governance. There's this uh, passion you have to stand up for the right things despite the times being challenging. So can you walk us through how you found that zone of genius as you were growing up. Sure, thank you. I, I'm not sure it's a zone of genius, but I will say that in some ways we all wear our values on our sleeves and very often leaders think they're not supposed to do that. Uh, but in reality, we kind of show who we are. Um, Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou used to, you know, had this wonderful saying about people, you know, believe who they are when they show it to you when you first first meet them. So I grew up, um, you know, in a very, uh, in some ways, uh, traditional African-American family. Uh, My family migrated to the North from the South. Uh, My grandparents and lots and lots of relatives um, stayed in the South. Um, And uh, so I grew up with, with these values of, hard work, integrity, um, religion, uh, all of those things that are um, very common to many, uh, many families of, of many um, diverse uh, backgrounds. And uh, I, you know, kind of, I didn't know that you were supposed to do anything different, <laughs> that, you, that you should hide who you are. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I really carried those with me uh, in my work. And one of those, you know, lessons we learned, um, you know, being coming from a, a fairly religious family, my, my family wasn't overly religious, but they were fairly religious was, you know, Matthew 28, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And that kind of uh, mentality and belief, core belief, uh, has just been part of, of who I am and uh, impacted every uh, decision I've made about, you know, my professional life as well as um, the things that I do to support uh, making this a better world for people. It, it's all based on our values. And so when I started thinking about writing this book, uh, I really wanted to start off with attributes of what what I believe, you know, good, strong leaders bring uh, with them. And uh, some people have kind of said, well, you know, why would you start off that way? And I start off that way because I think these four sort of core attributes or values that that I believe um, are fundamental to being a responsive leader. And um, so that's that's a little bit about my background. And uh, I I can say, you know, honestly, today that. I strongly believe that, you know, when people talk about what is an authentic leader, uh, that they're really talking about how do you show your values? Yeah. How do you, you know, um, sustain and keep them uh, as a driver of how you make decisions? You know, I always say that we live in a very conditioned world as opposed to an intentional world. And a lot of the way we see the world is based on, you know, 
our, our exposure, you know, what we grew up around, who our influences are, who constitutes of our circle of influence. And as you describe what you're saying here, when, you know, authentic leadership is really living out your values, a lot of people, because of what they're exposed to or because of what they've come to agree uh, as, as a value system, end up sometimes forgetting that they are strangers to themselves. You see this, you see this happen a lot of times when people get caught and they will say, someone will say, that's not the person that I knew, or that's not the person that I, <laughs> I know. All the time. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm curious with you and you've had years of experience in the healthcare and in school. Did you ever come across situations where you, people that you trusted and people that you loved, you found them straying away from what you knew them to be? And can you explain why that happened? Because I find that as we get older, sometimes we forget who we are. Absolutely. You know, um, we are all, we will all find ourselves in circumstances that test us, that test, you know, what those core values are and, and how we live them. And one of the things that happened to me very early in my career, and it stayed with me, I was in graduate school and I had the great opportunity to meet and hear the first African-American um, commissioner of corrections in Massachusetts. He came to Massachusetts for, uh, from Virginia. And I was just a young graduate student. And then the title of his speech was keep your bags packed. And he told the story. He basically told, you know, us young students, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, um, you're going to be tested and you will have, um, he lived his life by keeping his bags packed. And he said, when my integrity gets to a point where I can't be compromised, then I know I have to leave. And, you know, that story really stuck with me. And I picked up the paper maybe 12 months after we heard his speech and he was leaving Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And he was leaving Massachusetts because of the resistance he encountered with the criminal justice system and patronage. And uh, they just weren't, they were, they were testing him to a point where he did not feel he could be effective. So I think sometimes as hard as that is to say, because keeping your bags packed means a lot of things. It, it may test your, you know, it means that you may be in a position where you need to stay where you are and you, you find yourself compromised. Uh, but you 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 feel and believe you can't leave or you cannot open yourself up to what those opportunities might be out there for you if you have the courage to walk or you feel like if I stay, I, you know, I can really make the changes and I don't have to compromise myself. So I talk a lot. I talk in my book about this notion of keeping your bags packed and I will be forever grateful to John Boone, who, you know, who passed on um, for that lesson. And it's something I've tried to actually live in my life. But, um, you know, circumstances will challenge us all the time. And when we see people and we say, well, that doesn't seem like the, 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 um, the person I knew, uh, I like to, uh, want to put my empathy hat on and my humility hat on because we really don't know what 
challenges our people find themselves in when they have to compromise their values. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I'm sure we're going to dive into this as we go into the next topic, because you have what you define as seven secrets of responsive leadership. So first of all, what's responsive leadership and what are these seven secrets, if you could share? <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want all the secrets. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't know if they're really secrets, but to be honest with you, uh, my publisher liked the word secrets. <laughs> so. So uh, there are seven secrets, but <laughs> responsive leadership in, from, from my point of view um, really is about what drives us as leaders is the humanity of the people, the organization, the changes, the opportunities that we're trying to impact. And um, there are all kinds of kind of, you know, we hear about um, all kinds of ways people describe leadership. You know, there's the visionary leader or the innovative leader um, or, you know, something that I believe in very much the servant leader, which is a way that I uh, often um, describe myself. Uh, but the responsive leader for me, what drives our uh, work and our decision is the people and the humanity um, of the organization that we're serving and we're leading. So let me just give you a quick example of what I mean by that. Okay. I had a cousin, my cousin um, worked, in, worked in LA for a company that uh, she had been there for six or seven years. And they received a two week notice that her unit, her department was being um, uh, sold and uh, to you know an offshore company, and what they were told is that uh, in order to get their last paycheck, they had to train a team from India on their jobs, and of course the workers were outraged and they were angry, and. You know, when I think about responsive leadership, that is the exact opposite of responsive leadership. So the company made a decision, and it may have been a very valid decision, that they were going to offshore, offshore uh, this particular part of their business. A responsive leader doesn't necessarily have to change the decision or change the um you know, the rationale and the reason for the decision. But what a responsive leader might do is to say, how do we implement this decision in the most humane way for our employees, the people who will be impacted by it? So I asked her, I said, did they do anything to make you all feel, you know, worthy? Um, did they do anything to take, make you feel like you weren't responsible for um, the unit being, the work being shipped offshore? They didn't. They actually said the only way you get your last check is you train these people from India. So that's uh, what I mean by responsive leadership. I think a responsive leader would have looked at that decision and the implementation of that decision 
in a very, very different way. Yeah. Well, well, in, in the book, you say it's, you know, the seven uh, steps are, you know, take advantage of opportunity, turn around an organization, compete well by leading with heart, keep your bags packed, which is what you, you echoed earlier. And then you say echo one message at a time, look for opposition, value the interconnectedness of people and recover quickly. Now, it, it has to start off with take advantage of opportunity. Is that correct? I don't think it has to start off with take advantage of opportunity, but I think if you have incorporated what I call the big four uh, in our own, in your own value system, and, and that's how you operate. And for me, the big four attributes or values are curiosity that you're always thinking about, uh, learning and growing both personally and for your organization, both intellectually and personally and emotionally. Um, humility, that you recognize that none of us got here alone and your ability to be a great leader really is dependent on uh, other people and lots of other people and how you relate to other people. Um, empathy, the ability to think about uh, and um, uh, feel how others feel. So in that example I just gave you, uh, I always ask the question when I make a this big decision, is this how I want to be treated? Uh, I, if I were working in that department and have worked at that company for seven years, would I want to be told with two weeks notice that the only way I get my last paycheck is, you know, training a team of people from India? No, uh, that's not empathy. Uh, are there other ways I could do that? Yeah, you might have to train a team from India, but can you do that without making the people who have done this work and labored for this company and made this company look good and maybe even you know position them to be able to sell the unit? Uh, can you can you Im implement that decision without hurting the people that work there? That for me is is empathy. And then uh, resilience, you know, the ability to bounce back. And uh, those of us who have, you know, we will gone through many, many things in our lives, uh, you know, know that, um, you know, we practice and understand what, you know, putting one foot forward each and every day can do. So I think if we kind of live those values, opportunities come to us because we open ourselves up for opportunity, if we're curious. And um, uh, I tell the story in the book of uh, how I came to, when I arrived at Dimmick, um, it was a historic uh, campus uh, institution that was over a hundred years old that was started by uh, a Polish immigrant, uh, by women who you know, wanted to be able to practice medicine. Uh, they wanted to be able to serve the poor and over the course of, um, you know, 100 plus years, the institution had gone through its ups and downs and medicine was changing and women were being admitted to practice and admitted to medical schools and so on. So um, when I arrived on the campus, it was uh, in very poor condition. Uh, it sat on eight, uh, 10 acres of, you know, beautiful land in Boston on a clear day, you could see uh, downtown Boston. Like so many cities, our urban uh, communities are, are often, you know, really in the heart of the city. Uh, but the buildings were in very, very poor condition. And I received a 
uh, copy of um, uh, real estate appraisal that basically said, tear down these buildings, salt the land. It's, this is going to make great condos one day. And um, my spirit told me I listened to, you know, the curiosity and the humility and all of those parts of me, my values that said those women would be turning over in their graves if we tore down these buildings. And what's going to happen to the people, the, you know, the thousands of people who come here to get their medical care and their, you know, uh, human services and social service supports uh, if we did that. So, you know, for me, the first thing was what kinds, of, what can we put in place to ensure that this place is around? And I knew nothing about historic preservation, um, but uh, the curiosity led to me being connected to people who are passionate about historic preservation and, you know, uh, joining them in Alliance, they helped us to get the uh, the health center listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So it can never be torn down now. Right. Well, we hope it can never be torn down. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, what I'm saying is that um, when we open ourselves up, uh, very often uh, opportunities can come our way that we may not have envisioned, um, you know, without having that kind of attitude that I, I, I'm open to, to listening, learning. Uh, I'm curious about what other other ways to do things. Yeah. Uh, I think that brings opportunity to us. You, you know, I'm listening to you. I'm looking at your career. I'm looking at the world, and you know, people like you and a lot of the listeners who have this passion for just making an impact in the world, I've found that many times they don't feel ready, but they still have to step up to the plate. And I get emails and calls from a lot of listeners saying, I'm too young, I don't have enough resources, I'm not in this, in this part of, this, of, you know, of, the, of the world here, I don't know anybody here that could help. And I'm curious to you to know from your point of view, if you feel like there is a specific time for leadership or it's something that you just have to do and learn on the job? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think, um, I think I encourage particularly young people to step out there uh, because we all have ups and downs. We're going to have successes and failures, but if you have a confidence in yourself or you believe you have something to contribute, and you're open to those four attributes that I just, you know, talked about. Um, I think, you know, we all can pretty much do anything. Um, so I am one not to say hold back, <laughs> uh, but I am one to really say, make sure you put in place the supports you need. Make sure that you are operating um, in a way that you are continuously learning and growing. And sometimes we do have to step back. But if we're open to kind of um, continuously understanding, um, we'll, we'll know when it's time to step back, too. Yeah. You might say, I really can't. I don't know enough about budgeting. Um, but if you have the humility to, to one, recognize that, and then say, but let me find somebody who can really help me understand budgeting 
or help me to understand turnaround. Uh, at one point uh, at Demick, you know, we were in really um, bad financial crisis and the bankers, you know, were pushing us to close the program, close the organization, close certain uh, unprofitable parts of, of the program. Um, but we, we went out and we found a turnaround expert from business and he came in and he basically worked with us to be very, very disciplined about everything. And I learned I had to look at every penny that went out. Uh, I had to do some things that were kind of out of my comfort level, but that was all in service to the commitment to maintaining the services in the organization. So I think when we are open to um, learning and growing, and open to take making some of those hard decisions uh, in our life, that's part of the keeping our bags packed story, um, then, you know, step out there. Uh, I, I, um, I believe very strongly that um, if, we, if we do step up, we can succeed. And if we don't succeed, we're going to learn and grow from those experiences and maybe we're going to succeed the next time. Yeah. So I like young leaders. I. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I, I think it's something that we should do, and I, I think the idea of failing is, is has been, it's it always gets a bad rap. It's been uh, misconstrued. I, I think it's, it's very possible to fail forward. But I, my favorite leader of all time, the late Nelson Mandela, always said, "I never l- win or lose. I never lose. Rather, I win or learn." And, mm-hmm. and that concept. Uh, segues into what I'm uh, trying to ask you now for the next one is turning around an organization. You mentioned it briefly, Dimmock Community Health Center, and that was 21 years where you were the president, and then 12 years as president of Wheelock College, and you were the first African-American president there. I'm very curious about that because there is no doubt, even from doing my research, that there were some trying times Yes. Well, they sold the college after I left. But. They sold the co- exactly. Um, a lot of opposition. I'm sure some things that you wanted didn't get through initially. But what made you stay through, and how did you navigate the the waves and the the ups and downs and and everything that came with the leadership in there? Because you know some people would have seen those two positions and said, nope, not me. But yeah. you stayed. You know, for over ten years in each of these places. I'll tell you uh, a story uh, that happened to me at Wheelock, which really got me in touch with um, with uh, why I was there and my purpose. Um, after about 10 years and 10 very successful years, um, there's I have a, a friend who's a college president that says 10 years should be the your your term as college president, because after 10 years, either people think you're never going to leave. <laughs> or and they want you out or, um, you know, you find yourself, you know, in in uh, interesting times. So uh, that happened to me. Um, my the last 12 years, at, the last two years of my 12 year tenure at Wheelock were uh, very challenging, in part because we had changed the face of that institution uh, when I arrived less than. Six percent of the students were students of color. Uh, Most of the students were wonderful young uh, white women who came from suburban communities. And so we we basically said, you know, we're in the middle of Boston. 
We need to look like Boston. We need to be responsive. Uh, Wheelock uh, was an institution that trained uh, teachers, early education teachers and social workers. And so, you know, very much a commitment to changing the face of that institution and making it much more relevant to uh, the communities uh, that, you know, our, that we're, the, our students were going to serve. So I won't tell all the story, but got in, you know, my last two years were pretty tough as small private institutions were going through and continue to go through very challenging times with, you know, rising tuitions and all of that. And um, one day I was, I, you know, was walking across the campus and it was during a time that was very, very challenging. And I was caught up in, you know, my own misery and thinking about the next meeting or, or whatever, and really wasn't paying attention to what was kind of going on around me as I was walking into the building with where my office was located. And someone tapped me on the back and I turned around and it was a young African-American student and all she did was to put her arms around me and say, President Jackie, I'm praying for you. And she walked away. I was stunned. Uh, and I literally, tears started rolling down my eyes. I get even emotional. You can probably hear it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My boss. I, I can, I can. Telling the story now. Because with everything going on in that campus, um, it brought me back to A, my humility and why I was supposed to be there. And we never know who's watching us. We never know how we're impacting other people. And that young student, I didn't even know who she was. <laughs> you know, I didn't remember her name. I'd probably seen her on campus. But just the fact that she said that to me, um, and I had a very um, awful phone call that I was supposed to be going with next. And I actually told uh, the person I was talking to on the phone about that experience and basically said, this is why I'm here. And this is why I'm going to continue to do the work I'm doing until I'm supposed to leave, which was going to be two years after a year and a half or so after that anyway. So I think that um, I'm not sure why I was telling you that story. <laughs> no, we're talking about difficult times and, 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 and getting into how to navigate the waves of challenges. Yeah. Uh, and, and you yeah. talked about the last two years. Yeah. Uh, 
But I think it's, you know, we got to stay connected to our own humanity and to our own purpose of why we, we are doing what we're doing. And, you know, to John Boone's point, if you can't do what you, you know, are there to do, if you can't fulfill that purpose, then do we make the hard decision to keep our bags packed? All right. And listeners, so what I'm gathering so far is obviously authentic leadership starts with, you know, knowing what your values are. You need to be able to articulate that, live it and show it. And as you get into leadership, no matter how you know early it is or late it is, make sure you're surrounded by a team you, you trust, a team that can support you, a team that can do things that maybe you're not a good at. But your job as a leader and a responsive one is to be able to continue to one, remind them of the purpose, but also empower them to do their best at the this the skills you hired them for. But challenging times will come, and as those challenging times come, a reminder of your of your why is key. Uh, uh, a reminder of the end goal is, is something else to, to look forward to, and that idea to continuously commit uh, is 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 uh, important. Uh, did I say? Did I miss anything? No, you were great. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because uh, in today's world, you know, my generation and younger, I, I always say at the very least, you can write something. You can start a blog. You can put a podcast. You can start a YouTube show. It, whether you're a writer, you're a speaker, you're, you know, uh, depending on the different ability you have, even if you feel like, you, you know, you're not skilled at those things, you can at least commit to doing something. Yeah. And then if it's a small thing, just find someone or a group of people with similar interests that you can show up for and just be consistent at that. And if you do that consistently, that gradually grows. And don't think about the impossibility of the of the goal of the or the mission or I can't reach a million people this year. Just think about serving the people that you are showing up for. And that showing up is, is going to consistently um, uh, not, not only elevate your status as a leader, but also empower the people that you're showing up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Showing up is, you know, such a big part of, of um, winning, a big part of, of um, uh, being successful. Well, speaking of showing up, some people that you've shown up for are incarcerated mothers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why was that something that's, why is that rather something that's important to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when I was at Dimmick, um, at that time in Massachusetts, we have we have one one uh, prison, women's prison in Massachusetts. And what would happen to women is that if they were pregnant, um, they had the baby, um, they were they were taken to a hospital to have the baby, and literally within 24 hours they lost their baby. So I'm uh, the baby was you know taken away for adoption or or you know, taken away from them. And we had, this is part of the, the story of how we use whatever we have um, for the benefit of the mission and the values. So we had this building on Demick's campus that had been vacant for about 50 years. And literally the squirrels lived in it and occasionally homeless people lived in it. And along came um, um, two women who wanted to start a program uh, for pregnant women, pregnant incarcerated women, to get them out of the prison. Uh, uh, because most of the women who were incarcerated at that time were in there for petty crimes, that um, if they had had uh, 
other opportunities, they probably wouldn't have been in there for, you know, those that, that they wouldn't have been in that situation. And so uh, we worked together collaboratively um, to get uh, the building renovated, to get the state to buy into the notion that these women deserve to have high quality care. They deserve to have an opportunity to keep their child. They deserve to have an opportunity to uh, live, you know, a better life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the health center, we uh, worked with this group and we provided the health care services and the support services. They ran the program out of uh, the building. The building was renovated into a beautiful uh, home for, I think, about 15 women and their babies. And um that was something that um, I is, you know, was very proud of in, in the course of my career uh, because uh, it was all about opportunity, both for the mother and, and the child. You know, I, this is incredible for me because when you think about diversity and inclusion, which is something we're both passionate about, I think with inclusion, the best thing to do is to use your privilege as a superpower to create more opportunities for people to experience humanity. Yes. And privilege is often this thing that people like to get up in arms about. And and it's not, you know, the privileges exist in many forms as you know, whether it's the white, whether it's you having passport privilege, whether it's you have an ability to do something that others don't in your body and freedom is one, for example, being uh, able to be a mother. And so, I think about that on the very basic level. And when I go into companies and I go into schools, I I can explain it that way. And I've worked with people that have been successful at that, but sometimes they're leaders that have that resistance. You know, they're, they're just like, no, that's not something I can measure. That's not something that is going to actually advance uh, our, our mission statement and it's only gonna hold us back or that's just being politically correct. What do you say about all these uh, oppositions to diversity and inclusion in schools and in um, you know, institutions. Wow, that's we can have hours <laughs> on that. Uh, I, I, <laughs> um, you know, um, what we what we know is that sometimes we all have privileges. I feel extraordinarily yes. privileged because of the opportunities I was given, and I feel that you know part of my job you know, part of my life mission, part of what I'm supposed to do is to open that door for others. So um, that's why I do a lot of work with young people. I do, you know, anything I can. I'm always, you know, very often people call me and and mentoring or coaching or making available opportunity, whether it was the the building we had on the campus. Um, So part of, you know, what we find is, they're intentional. Um, we can be intentional about this, and sometimes we we can do things unintentionally for for good and bad. Um, and sometimes um, we miss learning opportunities. Um, so this is you know really top of mind uh, here in Boston. You may have heard about this. I don't know. Here in Boston, we had uh, we have a big breakfast here uh, on MLK Day, and the breakfast was uh, uh, Monday morning, of course. 
And at this particular year, it's the 50th anniversary of this breakfast. And so um, usually the politicians just come, you know, and they say a few platitudes and then they leave. But they decided to have a panel discussion with uh, four, the top four politicians, uh, the um, governor, the mayor of Boston, the senior senator, all white men, and our first African-American congresswoman elected uh, from Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley. And during the course of that panel discussion, a question was asked, and Ayana answered the question uh, very authentically and passionately about, you know, being a uh, African and being a black woman in this country, and uh, the fact that she is still an abolitionist. And it, it was she got a standing ovation after she you know, made the comments that she made. And the governor, who has a 75 or 78 or 80% approval rating, who um, believes he has, a, a, you know, has done a good job uh, on issues of diversity, although he hasn't, um, started, he was next after uh, Congresswoman Presley spoke. And he started off by saying funny, trying to be funny, but he said after that rant, um, essentially, I don't know what else I can say. And so this, of course, wow. led to a firestorm in Boston and social media. And when he said it, there was a visible groan in the room. I mean, everybody sort of looked and said, did we just hear what we just heard? That's kind of what we <laughs> And... So apparently the governor apologized later. And uh, Congresswoman Presley, of course, is you know, an amazing person. And she basically you know, would not comment. Uh, but it led to lots and lots of comments on social media. And the question became, was this, you know, here is, you know, a person that, was it unconscious bias? Was it racism? Was it? Just total disrespect was it the fact that you know he is a white man uh, without you know any understanding of of how he said that or humility because I kept saying he had to know at the moment that he said that he had to feel the reaction of the audience there were fifteen hundred people there. Um, and if there was any humility, you would say, gee, I didn't mean to say this the way I said. I didn't mean it to come out the way it came out or some acknowledgement. And um, so what I am trying to say is that these issues go very, very deep. And no matter how much we work on them, we're going to see signs of something popping up. Yeah. Very often unexpectedly. And my hope is that this turned out to be a teachable moment, not just for the governor, but for the 1500 people in the room and the thousands of media people who ended up participating in the conversation 
on social media that came after. Um, so for me, the lesson was the work has to continue. We have so far to go, even though we've come, you know, we've come far. Yeah, you know, that's a good example of uh, opposition to diversity and inclusion. Someone thinking that they've done a good job, even though they haven't, which is what you said. And um, the lack of awareness of someone saying something like a rant. And I guess my follow-up to that is, well, I'm curious about why you feel like um, the governor hasn't done a good job, one. And then the follow-up to that is, how can people get awareness of things that are important to many people? Because I, you know, my job is when I go into companies and I do my research and I present my findings to the leaders, they often come up with, oh, wow, I didn't know that was happening. I mm-hmm. didn't know that that person felt that way. So how do we get back to a place where we are better listeners and observers mm-hmm. of what's going on and what's happened in Massachusetts that diversity and inclusion isn't up to par to where you believe that it's uh, inclusive enough? Wow. Well, I think, you know, your example of the person saying, well, I didn't know that was happening. Then the next question is, okay, what are you going to do about it? Mm. What are you doing about it both personally and as a leader? Because, you know, the fact of the matter is leadership sets the tone for an organization. And if you go back to my, you know, what we talked about before, do you have any curiosity? Are you willing to say, I want to learn? You know, tell me more. Now that that's if someone said, well, the governor should have taken that was an opportunity for him to come out and say, I want to learn more about myself, about you know, the state of, of relationships. So when you encounter that in, in the company, um, it really, the role that the leader takes in uh, acknowledging and accepting and actually doing something about it uh, makes a huge difference. So those leaders who talk the, talk the game but don't walk the walk, so if they set up their little diversity committees, but they never show up or they show up and they stay for five minutes and they say, you know, give a pat on the head and say, well, I care about this. Well, if you really care about it, you're going to sit through that whole diversity training. You're going to clear your calendar. And that says a lot that, that about the person himself or herself and the message he wants to send to his organization. So I, I think it's more than, it, it, we have to take it to the next level. It's more than what you say, it's really what you do and yeah. how you behave and how you show up uh, as the leader um, in, in these situations. And it's more for the governor. It was, it was not enough for him to send and to call up uh, Congresswoman Presley and apologize personally to her. You know, I don't know what the conversation was, but I know her quite well. She probably accepted his apology. But what about the other 1,300 people who were in the audience? Did they hear him acknowledge he made a mistake? Did they hear him acknowledge that this was a learning opportunity for him? No. His press secretary made an announcement 
you know, because the next day it's all in the papers, of course, you know. And unfortunately, the messages from that wonderful breakfast got all pushed aside and pushed under the rug because of the governor's comment about the rent. So the message that Reverend Curry made about love and the value of love in this, you know, crisis time that we we find ourselves in, nobody nobody even said anything about that. We lost all of that. Yeah. No, I'm I'm yes, I you're preaching you're preaching right now. So humility and curiosity, very key in order to combat or work with diverse and inclusion. Even if you are on the side that doesn't understand it, you have to be open to learning and be curious. So you things like, I want to learn more. Tell me more by experience. And then the humility is understanding that first of all, this isn't about you if you're you know on the privileged side or you're on the on the higher side of the power dynamic. It's about understanding that many people feel like they've been left out or many people feel like there are not enough opportunities for them and you have to humble yourself to maybe even accept that you've played a role in that yeah. and so what, what what are you now going to do about that yeah. and and that that has to be followed up with action so um you know humility curiosity humility action it, it sounds like what, I, what i'm hearing yeah yeah it's it's challenging because all of you know these are challenging times and you know there's so many um there are so many missed opportunities and there's so many opportunities yeah for us to you know be in in a continuously evolving learning space as as human beings this is us this is us and and before we wrap up I can't let you go without talking about your hometown. You're from Flint, Michigan, right? Flint. I am. I grew up in Flint, Michigan. Yes, yes. How correct or false have has the news been um, that we've been hearing? Because obviously, the the state of what's happening right now is is as a res- direct result of you know leadership, yeah. and so. Well, I guess I'm curious to to hear from your thoughts as a native when you hear the news and whether you, you feel like it's accurate, whether you feel like there's more room or there's an opportunity for people to learn how to improve. Oh, well, there, there are always opportunities, even in uh, and even in, you know, the best of situations, there is always opportunity for improvement. I'll tell you, it's very hard and very painful for me uh, when I go back uh, to Flint and I I get back. I still have, you know, many relatives there and lifelong friends there. Um, so you see the goodness of the people, and you see uh, what has happened um, to that city. Um, most of the people when I when I grew up, you know, people had health insurance. They had decent paying jobs. They got a car. And they bought a house and you worked for General Motors. My mom worked for General Motors for 39 years. Um, Most of uh, the people that I went to school with, that's what they did when they graduated from high school, because we had a a mother, a cousin, a brother, an uncle or and, you know, somebody that could get you into General Motors. And I I still have a lot of anger for the automobile industry because they were not responsive leaders when they pulled out of a place like Flint and left it 
with no economic base. Now, you know, some people could say, well, the leaders should have known that you can't rely only on one industry um, for you know the survival of uh, the economic survival of a community. But the reality is, Flint for decades and decades, uh, its entire economy was based around the automobile industry. And when the automobile industry pulled out, uh, what was left for people? When they closed, you know, miles and miles of factories, uh, you know, when you, the factories used to take up, the parking lots literally would be miles. So you took away land and housing and all of this, and then you had no commitment to replacing, rebuilding, uh, helping that community. That to me is another example of non-responsive leadership. And yeah. so then, you know, 25 years later, um, you go back and it's very, very painful very painful to see what has happened to what what was once middle-class neighborhoods, working-class neighborhoods where people could be proud of their homes and um, all of that. Um, but, you know, I think the city is trying to rebound. Um, it, um, the mayor there's a um, uh, African-American woman who grew up in Flint. Uh, it has a long way to a long way to go. Um. Good. I mean, uh, good in the sense that I, I love that you still have that sense of anger because we have to be able to call out these things that happen. You know, sometimes you, you know people that are leaders or companies or in, in, individuals forget the influence that they have. You know, they sometimes they just think, oh, I came here, I provided an opportunity, and then I'm just leaving. But they don't realize the consequences of inaction. Or turning their back on something that they know is is obviously going to affect some someone or someplace in the long term, mm -hmm. uh, in exchange for short term um, gains, and yeah. that's that's a constant leadership di di uh, dilemma: short term versus long term. Mm -hmm. If I do my term here, you know, you think about with presidents here. You know, if I do my four years here and I boost the economy, boom, it's not going to happen. You know, everybody's going to think I'm good, but you know that deep down that there are some things that you're doing that could badly adversely affect the country or the company long after you've gone because of some practices you've put in place or some habits that you've, you, you've absolutely got. absolutely and, and you know it's it, sometimes they're really really hard challenging decisions you know that that we all make in our lives and like you talked about short-term versus long-term gain or you know um Sometimes we don't know the consequences of a decision we've made, and we go into those decisions hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah. Well, where can people find your book? Oh, great. They can find it um, on Amazon, on Barnes & Nobles, on IndieBound, um, and hopefully in local bookstores. Yeah, local bookstores for sure. And, and um, we'll put that in the show notes. But Jackie Jenkins Scott is the author of The Seven Secrets of Responsive Leadership. And as you've heard, you know, she guides readers through major leadership moments, you know, from basically choosing the right job to 
finding ways to understand how to navigate the whole space with strategic uh, savvy. And she does it with a lot of heart. And, and that's that's something that's always missing in, in today's uh, leaders. Uh, I guess when you think about platforms, many people have been programmed to be a certain way so they can get elected. And when they get elected, that's it. So if you want to understand how to be authentically yourself and how to guide people to do the same, I think, uh, you know, seven secrets of responsive leadership should be on your bookshelf. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate it. No, it's it's, it's my honor. And, and and as we wrap up, I always ask my guests this question. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So oh, great statement. Thank you. So Jackie, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Wow. How do I use my difference to make a difference? I think, you know, one way is try to lead by example. And and um, I try to live these values that I talk about in the book. And I hope that I am a good role model for um, both not just emerging and young leaders, but for uh, us uh, seasoned and experienced leaders when we run into uh, both the triumphs and the issue and the challenges. Yeah. So I guess I would say that's how I try to use my difference to make a difference. Well, you're definitely doing a good job and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jackie. This has been fun. It has been. Thanks so much. The pleasure is mine. And ladies, gentlemen, and gender and non-binary individuals, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.